the world around us screams for our attention. What's right? What's wrong? Who has the answers? Who should I believe? Come plug into a new reality. Awesome. Well, kia ora, everyone. Uh, it's really good to see you. Really good, really good to have you guys here. Ooh, awesome. I'm going to be booming and ringing in your ears all night. No, it's great. These sound guys will take care of it. Uh, my name is Colin, and it's really awesome to see you here, and we're really glad. And like Caleb said, I'm stoked because we get to begin a new series. The last one was so much fun, and it was amazing to begin to encounter God through these different traditions Christianity's had throughout um, its history. And now we're turning a new step and we're looking at this theme of spiritual reality. And it's this idea of, we get these mixed messages always from the world of, you should do this, and this is the right way to live, and this is what the good life looks like, and this is how we should talk, and this is how you should use your money, and this is how we should like try and aim for things. And there's all these mixed messages, and as a Christian, it can often be really confusing to know what to do in the midst of that, eh? How do you relate to the world? What's What's the world's reality versus God's spiritual reality, which is the one we want to tune into? So tonight, we're going to kick up on that theme, and we're going to be looking at the blurred lines that we have within our world. Specifically tonight, we're going to be looking at how Christians interact with culture um, and the world around us, which is a, a, a tricky thing, and throughout church history, it's had a really checkered past of sometimes we've done it really well, and sometimes we've done it not well. So as we begin, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll kick in and look at some verses. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are here with us. As we look at, um, look at your scriptures and as we look at the world around us, we pray you'd give us your eyes to see, ways to understand the world as you see it, not as the way the world sees it or as we see it. Help reframe our vision around you, Jesus. Amen. So again, like I said, Christianity's relationship with culture has been good and bad. And one of the most formative verses that we've had is in James 4, verse 4. And it says, James writing to uh, Christians scattered throughout Turkey and East Asia, um, Mid-East Asia, it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Tricky verse, eh? How do, you, how do you deal with that? And Christians have struggled throughout, with that throughout history. If friendship with the world means enmity with God, then it means I can't be a friend of the world, I've got to not be a friend of the world, and I've got to just be a friend of God. And it's led to some great things and some not so great things. And so right now, I hope you guys can indulge me. We're going to go on a nostalgia crazy train through the 90s. Um, because particularly in the 90s, there developed this thing, it started in the 70s and 80s, but it reached its fruition, its peak in the 90s, which was called contemporary Christian music. I'm a musician, I've always loved music, and I grew up as a missionary kid, so uh, contemporary Christian music was my jam. Like, that was where it was at. And there was this interesting thing, and this interesting thing developed, that as music in society got big, you began to see these pockets of Christian music begin to develop, that became eerily, eerily similar. 
Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In the late 80s, um, within society, hip-hop became this huge thing, this new music thing that started in the underground and then just got crazy. And then with French Pr Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, it reaches this tipping point where it just pervades all of culture and particularly white um, conservative Christian culture suddenly realized that hip-hop could be cool. But then there were all these hip-hop bands that were playing music that as Christians you wouldn't really feel comfortable with. And so what happens? Well, we don't want to be friends with the world because we don't want to engage in the secular music. And you get, uh, you get this. Anyone know that band? No one. Ha <laughs> Awesome. This was a band that was super famous where I, was, where I grew up called DC Talk. Anyone know DC Talk? You guys got to know DC Talk. DC Talk, a conservative uh, Christian band that came out of uh, Liberty University, um, rose up right as hip hop was reaching its peak. You got DC Talk that came out with good, family-valued Christian rap. And it took off. The Christian scene just ate it up. And they became one of the most famous bands uh, within Christian history. But what if you weren't into hip hop? Another, another music scene was taking over, and it was the amazing uh, music genre of the boy band. <laughs> there you go. Backstreet Boys, anyone listen to Backstreet Boys back in the day? Yeah, there we go. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I'm just publicly airing my shame here. Um, <laughs> Backstreet Boys, in sync, you got this huge move of the boy band in popular music, and everybody loved it. But the thing is, some of their lyrics were less than savory. And we don't want to be friends with the world, so don't worry. Christians, we got this. Anyone know this band? Plus one. Because the one is Jesus. Get it? <laughs> now, you're noticing, I mean, Christians, great bastions of creativity. It's like a blatant knockoff of everybody. Like the same in both songs with like the same five band uh, boys who are looking pretty and shaking their hips. Um, but then Plus One had these nice, you know, it's written on my heart, not a girl, it's Jesus. Uh, the only way you knew that is because they marketed to the Christian audience. They never said Jesus, um, but they were the Christian response. But then, then pop music kind of faded, and, you know, amidst this gleam, there was this rising tide of young people who were frustrated with the polish and the shine of everything, and this other band came and rose to the ranks to worldwide popularity. Nirvana. Anyone listen to Nirvana? Well, you're bad Christians. You're bad Christians. You shouldn't listen to Nirvana. No, that's not true. I listen to Nirvana too. Um, but Nirvana came up and there was this huge grunge scene and it took over. But again, some of Nirvana's lyrics were, you know, less than savory and Christians who don't want to be friends with the world because they don't want to be enemies of God, needed something else to listen to. Luckily, they were not, you know, out of sorts. Guess who came to the rescue? DC Talk. <laughs> you thought they were a hip-hop band, but once Grunge became popular, DC Talk released this. Yeah. Anyone listen to that song? Oh, that song was huge, eh? Anyone have the rap from the first and second verse memorized? Because I had to match the rhythm of his belly with my head. No, just me. That's cool. Yes, yeah, yeah, there's a few faithful. That's awesome. But can you notice this trend? Eh? Within contemporary Christian, with contemporary Christian music, there'd be this big societal boom of a style, and then Christians would come up with their own uh, 
cheaper, not quite as good knockoff. And then another band would come up and then Christians would come up with a not as good knockoff. And another band would come up and if no one came to fill the void of the knockoff, well, you could count on DC Talk to uh, come in and fill that void for you anyway, because they managed to uh, fill those things. But it, it was the whole thing, and what I'm trying to peel back is there's this mindset within Christians often is because we don't know how to relate to the world. And we've got this verse that tells us that friendship with the world means enmity with God. And we certainly don't want to be enemies of God. So I guess that means we have to completely forsake our relationship with the world. And the problem with that is, I mean, in, in one sense, it works out really well for us because we can say it really, really clearly. It's just that... Um, Hey, oh, there it goes. Might have been Sylvia in the back. You're amazing. Um, in one sense, it makes it easy because as long as the world is out there, if we just stay in here, then we're safe because then we're not being friends with the world and that means we're not becoming enemies against God. So if we just stay in here, that's all right. And it makes our life really easy because then everything is black and white. Oh, well, I don't want to listen to that non-Christian band, so I'll listen to this Christian band that's kind of the same. Oh, there's that movie out there. I don't know if I want to watch that, so I'll see if I can watch the Christian movie, The Christian Alternative. Oh, there's that cafe, but then there's the Christian cafe, so I'll go to that one because I don't want to be polluted by the world. And it you know, makes life simple because it's black and white. But the difficulty is I think life's a little bit more blurred than that, and the lines don't always match up so easily as this is the good thing and this is the bad thing. And as Christians, we particularly have an issue with this because while we might listen to that verse in James and say friendship with the world means enmity with God, and then we just retract from the world and do our own Christian thing in our own bubble, we might fit that verse, but our life doesn't really reflect the life of Jesus, who is constantly going out and befriending prostitutes and tax collectors and the worst of the worst and the low and the low, and Jesus was called a drunkard because he was going to all the parties with everybody else. Also difficult to reconcile that with Paul, who went to all these different cultures. And one of Paul's most famous sermons in the book of Acts is where he engages with a bit of Greek culture. They had this uh, altar to this unknown God. And Paul was able to look at that and recognize that there's something of the spirit in this. And so says to them, don't you know that this altar to the unknown God, the God that you're worshiping, I'm going to reveal to you now is Jesus Christ. He does this amazing thing where he links into the world to be explaining Christ to them. So the lines, the lines are a little bit more blurred. So today what I'm hoping to do is if we can look, through, look this through and discuss it a little bit, we might be able to have a way to go forward in this next series because all the topics we're looking at is looking at how the world looks at things versus how we look at things. But if we don't understand what the world and us means, then we're always going to be doing this them and us. And I wonder if it's just a bit more blurry than that. So I want us to look at a little bit these two words. Can we do the next slide, Sylvia? Awesome. Of the world versus heaven. And this is the word that James uses. Friendship with the world means enmity with God. And God and heaven are often synonymous. In Matthew, you have the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke, you have the kingdom of God. And so there's this, this dichotomy. And in Western churches and in Western um, mindset and thinking, we love duality. We love left and right, east and west, top and down. We love these opposites because it helps us to make sense of the world. And so when we see something like the world and heavens or the world and God, we like to do this opposite movement. 
And so we like to think the world is everything out there. So, you know, malls, movies, music, art, culture in general, that's the world. And God and heaven is in here with us in the church. Or we might think heaven is that place we're going to go to eventually. So when Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven has come, we think, okay, yep, that's when we're going to go to heaven eventually to be with God because we like to think the world is out there and heaven is either in here in the church or up eventually when we get there. But the problem is the Bible doesn't use these terms in the same way. And so if James is using the world and we assume that he's just meaning everything out there, we are on a completely different definition from what James would use. See, when James talks about the world, he's not saying everything outside of the church. He's not saying everything that's outside of these four walls is the world. Instead, James is talking that when he says the world, he's talking about the rule of sin or the rule of humanity. So in, in biblical times, that would have, it's often criticized at the way sin had corrupted the world. So when they talked about the world system of power, they're talking about how Romans would go and use power to bring people into submission. And if someone rebelled, you would use military might to force your way. That's the world. That's the way the world works. Or it talks about tax collectors. If, you, if you're acting like the world, it's tax collectors who had to go and steal from people, tax way beyond what was legally required of them in order for them to survive, in order for them to not get killed by the Romans who are oppressing. So the, the way, the rule of sin, the rule of the world is having to steal from one another in order to make ourselves feel better. Or again, in, this, in Roman times, there was incredible class divisions where you would have had 90% of the population of the entire Roman Empire on subsistence day-to-day -day living, with barely getting enough food to make it through that day. And you would have had all this wealth concentrated to this tiny, tiny percent of aristocrats and landowners who used their wealth to keep people in systems of poverty and oppression. And so when James is saying the world, this is what he's talking about. He's saying if your friendship with the world, you're loving the way the world does things. And it's easy to look at like Roman times, but also Jesus used the same description when he talked about how Pharisees would use religion and the religious rites to bar who was holy and who wasn't. And they also used religion and they used their text, their sacred text, to be able to gain people power in order for them to do a riot or uh, a revolution in order to put themselves in power using might equals right. The wealthy are the most important. Those who are first deserve it and those who are last are lazy. That is what James is referring to when he says the world. It's this rule of sin. And when he's talking to these, this small church in, uh, in Turkey, he's saying to them, don't you know that as long as you love those systems, you're against what God is doing? Don't you know as long as you love being wealthy and being, having your self-worth tied to wealth, you're going to miss what God is doing? Don't you understand that as long as you're going to use power and influence to shove your way forward and push yourself to the top, you're loving the way the world does things. That doesn't mean everything out there. There's specific rules and systems of sin which are opposed to God. And the difficulty for us is if we always think that the world is out there, 
we're going to miss that it's also in here. When I was, uh, when I was working in the UK, uh, we had a missions team come and join us. And this missions team, I mean, they were great. They had great intentions, but they came from a culture that was like, um, how do I describe it in a nice way? Um, they were like spiritual crazy people. Like they were hyped up on holiness in a way that made you feel a little uncomfortable. You know, when you, you said, hey, how's it going? They're like, oh, praise Jesus. And you're like, whoa, slow down. It's seven in the morning. No one deserves to be that happy at this time of day. They were like on this super spiritual high, right? Where everything was about God. And it was awesome. Like that's a good thing to love God. But the spiritual high was huge. And so they were in this whole like holiness thing. And so they were trying to be like, we need to be, we need to be righteous. We need to be holy before God. We need to be holy before God. We need to not be friends with the world because the world is sin. And we need to not be part of sin. So we need to separate ourselves from sin so that we can be holy and set apart for God so that God can do things through us. And all of those are good things, but they took it to this crazy extreme where um, we were working with this church in London. And this church had decided to do an open mic night kind of like festival thing during the day. And so during the day, they had kind of a, a fate and kids' toys and games and things to play. And in the night, they had a cafe in their sanctuary. And they used their stage and their music to do an open mic night for anyone in the community to come to. So it was awesome. You had all kinds of people. You had Muslims, Hindus, um, just regular, slightly drunk English people. Um, everybody was gathered together, and they're having this awesome time as they were up here on the stage, singing Backstreet Boys, singing Nirvana, singing those songs that we all really, really love. And it's awesome because for many of them, it was the first time they'd walked through church doors. So we were stoked. And as this event was going on, my friend looked around and she realized that none of the, none of the missions team was there. So she looked and she looked through the congregation and no one was there at the tables. This missions team wasn't there. And so she went around looking for them. And as she left the main auditorium, she went back into the foyer and she found this whole missions team in a circle in a corner, sitting down, huddled over. She's like, what are you guys doing? And she looks over, and they're just sitting there playing cards, seemingly incredibly disengaged. And she's like, guys, what are you doing? You're, you're here to hang out with these people. Tell them about Jesus. Welcome them with the love of God. And do you know what the response was? We, we can't do that because they're singing non-Christian songs in the church and they're, they're polluting the holiness of the sanctuary, and we just can't participate in that. And my friend, I think she wanted to start there and be like, why are you playing cards? You know, like 50 years ago, people would have gotten the smack for that, but it was lost on, uh, on this missions team. But what was so fascinating was this team was so convinced that there was this huge separation between the world is secular and sinful and us here, we're godly and we're good and we've got it right and we need to maintain the boundary between those two, otherwise we're enemies against God. What they didn't realize is that systems of the world were working even in their reactions then because they weren't engaging with what God was doing. They weren't able to recognize that they were separating themselves off when a huge part of the kingdom of God and the huge part of the church is radical hospitality that loves even when it costs us something, that is able to welcome the foreigner, the stranger, the immigrant, the hurt, the broken, to open up our arms and say, you have a place amongst us no matter how broken or weird you are, you belong here with us. But they miss that because they had the strong distinction between the world and us. 
And if we think the world is always out there, we're going to miss the fact that it's also in here. And it's in here. And it's the way we're going to relate to us. And the way we relate to each other, there are systems of the world that still take place in our relating. When we react with jealousy and spitefulness or fear or insecurity, we're working through systems of the world. And as long as we love those systems, we're going to be missing what God is wanting to do. So that's what the world is. Now, if we look at the kingdom of heaven, again, I want to slightly redefine this a little bit. Again, we always like to think of heaven as either the place that we're going to go or uh, like an AKA for Christian subculture. But again, in the Bible, it's not understood that way. In the Bible, heaven is understood as the rule of God. So when Matthew announces the kingdom of God is here, he's saying there's a way that God is doing things and it's happening now. And how do we know what the kingdom of God is? Well, there's so many sayings throughout the gospel where Jesus explains it so well. The rule of God, what does it look like? It looks like blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom. It looks like blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, looks like the first will be last, and the last will be first. The kingdom of God looks like if you are seeking to be the greatest, then become a servant and serve your brother and sister, and then you will be great in God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven isn't just some far off place that we're going to go. It's the rule of God that is working in the world now. And it's changing. And you, you can look at it and compare and contrast. And this is what James is doing. Don't you understand that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Don't you understand that as long as you think the first are the go-getters and they deserve to be first and the last are just lazy, you're missing the kingdom of God, which says the first will be last and the last will be first. Don't you understand that if you're operating in the system of the world that thinks that money means power and money means influence and money means self-worth, that you're missing the fact that the kingdom of God says, blessed are the poor. The kingdom of God that says, I am the ultimate provider. God provides everything, each to his own. So you don't need to fear or try and force things to happen in your own way. God will make it happen. And the thing is, as long as we think that the kingdom of God is in here with what we're doing, we're going to miss the kingdom of God out there. Because God, by his spirit, is incredibly active. The kingdom of God is everywhere. It's certainly not contained within these four walls, and it's certainly not contained within Christian subculture. The kingdom of God is what brought Christianity into being. We have our existence because it exists and it is moving in the world. An example of this and how so easy it is to miss the kingdom of God in places was uh, a couple of years ago, there was uh, a big film that came out called Noah. And anyone see it? Noah? Anyone see it? Now, Noah was pretty controversial, eh? Had, uh, came out to <laughs> mixed reviews, I'd say, uh, particularly within, uh, I think, Christian churches. And I had some friends... Who, and I don't want to give them the wrong end of the stick, we're legitimately concerned about some of the things that Noah portrays. It has these weird rock monsters that 
look more like the Lord of the Rings than what represents for us the biblical story of Noah. God looks like this weird tyrant who is just hell-bent on destroying everyone so that uh, an eco-vision can just, humans can die and then plants can make the earth better again or something like that. And so there were some legitimate concerns with Noah. And so what happened was um, my friends and a few of the other Christians I know got really, really upset about it. Really, really upset about it and be like, don't go. Like, don't go. That is the world. Come, we'll show you the kingdom of God somewhere else. That is the world. Don't engage with it. Come over here to where the kingdom is. We'll show you, we'll show you it here. Don't, don't talk about it. But the irony is I think, I think we might have missed the boat if we separate those two so quickly. And if we don't engage with the kingdom of God that might have been in that film. One example of that was The Rock Monsters. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it was a little disconcerting when you showed up and they were talking rock monsters, which is a bit odd. They were supposed to be angels. Um, but a little known fact is that these rock monsters and this narrative that they were angels who gave technology to humans. And because they gave technology to humans, they were cast down out of heaven. And they were forced to live on the earth in this um, tortured state. This whole narrative didn't come from the mind of some weird um, atheist director who just wanted to liven up the story a little bit. It actually comes from a Jewish book called Four Ezra that was written in about two, three to 200 BC and is part of a uh, collection of books called the Pseudepigrapha, which is a collection of writings that are kind of Jewish, kind of Christian. We wouldn't consider them canon and we wouldn't preach from them or uh, take all of our ideas about God from them, but they were certainly written with God in mind and with the Jewish history in mind. And this whole story of the angels coming down is all what fills this book of four Ezra. And do you see how Christians, we miss the boat because we thought it's the world, so we don't engage with it, so we stop talking about it, and we miss the fact that this comes from our own history. The story was part of our books and the, the books that we can look and, and interact with. And beyond that, part of the thing that I keep on thinking when I see this film is I think, yeah, there are some things I don't agree with. And particularly, my biggest beef was the portrayal of God who has no love for humanity, um, but is instead trying to just bring his vengeful wrath and exterminate them, which is so different from the biblical characteristic. But what I think is involved in the kingdom of God is that there were studios who were willing to drop millions and millions of dollars engaging with the Bible and the story of God. And there were millions and millions of people all around the world from all kinds of different faiths who were interested in engaging with the story of God. Now, granted, they didn't get all the parts right, but can you not see something of the Spirit drawing people to himself there? Can you see the Spirit engaging people, people who hadn't picked up the Bible for years after watching Noah went home and opened up the Bible and read to see what it was like for themselves? I don't know what to call that other than the kingdom of God drawing people unto itself. And as long as we want to put this strong, strong line between the world is sinful and our Christian culture is good, we're going to miss what the kingdom of God is doing. Again, in the, there was a, a rap band called NWA. Um, you guys don't have to raise your hands to say if you listen to them because they're even more controversial than the other bands have talked about. But they had this one song that was incredibly difficult to listen to called F the Police. And um, don't want to say it here. <laughs> but the truth was, this song incited riots. And so many people got so angry, obviously, because of the title of the song. And they're talking about it inciting hatred towards police officers. And no one wants to attack police officers. 
But what was so good about this song was it was the first time there was this authentic cultural expression of the racism that the black community had experienced in LA. But Christians, because of the packaging around it, wanted to just eliminate it and not engage with it at all. And we missed the boat being able to be allies with our African-American brothers and sisters because we were so afraid of getting tainted by the world that we weren't able to be a part of what the kingdom of God was doing in addressing systems of racism and oppression within a nation. You see? You see how these lines mean we can miss what God is doing? And I don't want us to miss that. These lines are blurred. The world is in us. The world is in our systems, in our cult of nice that we've built up, in Christian music that is able to talk about struggles as long as we use metaphors like deserts or valleys or rains or floods, and as long by the chorus we've talked about how God has fixed it. And we leave no space to deal with brokenness and depression and mental illness and agony because we have this cult of nice. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the system of the world trying to present ourselves as perfect. See how these lines are blurred. And so today, as, as we finish and as we close, if I can invite the band to come back on. If there's anything I'd love to say is as we begin this next series, Let's begin on this sure footing, not thinking that the world is just everything outside of these four walls and the church and heaven is everything inside of these four walls. But let's redefine it, looking at the world as systems of sin that are counter to what God is wanting to do. And we see the kingdom of heaven as being this infectious, subversive force that is working in all realms of society before we've even got there. The spirit is present and active, and it's our job to look for what the spirit is doing in all these corners of the world and partner with it. Encourage it to grow and work with it, because that is what God is doing. So I wonder if we can just rewrite this verse in James to help make sense a little bit more. As long as we love the way that sin works, we're going to miss the way that God does. So as we close with one song, let's just take some time to reflect and ask God to reveal to us, both tonight and through this ongoing series, how the system of the world is still working in your heart and in my heart. How the world is still at work in this church and us as a family. And let's pray that God will help us to rid ourselves of it. That we might be able to just join with the kingdom of God both here, but join with the kingdom of God in Tauranga, in all these different areas, in all of our workplaces, in our families, in our relationships, in different places, in different regions. God's spirit is there. And let's go with eyes open to see what God is doing. And so this whole series is going to be hopefully about letting us sit underneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we let the gospel wash over us again and again, we pray that it will retrain our eyes to see the kingdom of God and to see the world within us that we might change and move beyond it. Let's stand as we pray. God, I thank you so much that you are not contained to our subculture. God, I thank you so much that you are not contained by the walls of this church. I 
thank you so much that you are not contained by Christian art, by Christian music, by Christian films, by Christian venues and Christian places. God, I thank you that you are at work everywhere, that your spirit is drawing all kinds of people from all kinds of places to yourself. I thank you for that because that is the only hope we have. It's only as we see you working that we can partner with you and make something happen. But Lord, we, as we engage with this, we also recognize so clearly that the world is within us. I still desperately love the way the world does some things, and I don't want to. Jesus, by your power, would you free us from some of those loves? Would you work deep in our hearts in our minds to retrain us to forsake the way the world does things, to love power, to crave influence, to, pe to shove people down, to put ourselves up. Help us to forsake those things that we might encounter your kingdom afresh. And I thank you because it is your work and you are doing it in us. God, have your way. Amen.